So last week we started looking at the parables in Matthew 13. Parables were Jesus' stock and trade, and this chapter is just packed with them. The word parable actually means something that is cast alongside. In other words, a comparison. And all of the parables in Matthew 13 have to do with the kingdom of heaven, with God's rule or reign. And indeed, this parable starts out, as we heard, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd uh, defines a parable as a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, like the weeds and the wheat, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt as to its precise application so as to tease it into active thought. Well, this parable really teases me. I think it's one of the more challenging parables in this gospel because it leaves us with so many questions. For example, who is the enemy that sneaks into the landowner's field to wreak havoc while everyone is sleeping? What does this person have against the landowner? And why does he take the time and effort to systematically sow seeds instead of just doing something quick and dirty? We don't know. The parable doesn't tell us. Now, if any of you looked at your Bibles, or if you know the scripture well, right now some of you may be mentally waving your hands in the air. Oh, Pastor Lee, but Jesus does tell us. Just look ahead to verses 36 through 43. And indeed, in those verses, the disciples come to Jesus asking for an explanation, and he gives them one. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the, we- field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Well, if that's true, why didn't Jesus just say that in the first place? It would have been so much easier. Many scholars actually suspect that Jesus might not have said that, but that this might be Matthew's explanation an explanation that fits in with his obsession with the end of the world and judgment and fiery furnaces where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. He does that a lot in this gospel. An explanation that helped him to make sense of the struggles of the church in his day. And I can certainly understand that. This explanation is cut and dried, logical, even comforting. There is good wheat and there are bad weeds, just as there are wise bridesmaids and foolish bridesmaids and sheep and goats in other parables of Matthew. And in the end, the bad weeds get what they deserve. All right. And of course, we disciples, we Christians, we Methodists, we Republicans, we Democrats, choose your category, are the good seed shining like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. End of story. Except that it's not. (laughs) For as much as we want it to be otherwise, as quick as we are to separate people into us-them categories, life is rarely that straightforward. I find myself asking when I read this parable, well, how do I know where I stand? And where in this interpretation is the love and grace that is the hallmark of God's reign? 
all of which prompts me to set aside the interpretation today and take a closer look at the original parable. Again, we aren't any given any explanation as the who about the who or why seeds are sown, weeds are sown in the farmer's field, and it's only when the plants begin to, to develop grain that the landowner's slaves even notice the weeds. I find it interesting that the first thing that they ask is, Master, did you not sow good seed? Well, of course he did. Where then did these weeds come from? Their surprise is kind of, well, surprising. First of all, I've yet to find a garden where there aren't weeds. Anybody have a garden like that? No weeds. Don't see any hands. Okay. And second, you would think that they would have recognized that there were weeds in this field earlier. Turns out that the most likely weed that would have been sown is something called bearded darnel, a plant that is not only common in the area, but is sometimes infected by a fungus that is toxic to human beings. And here's the thing, darnel looks almost exactly like wheat until it reaches maturity. And then you can tell them apart because the wheat heads with the grain in them are heavy and they fold over while the darnel still sticks up. But it's not until then that you can tell what it is. So the servants were literally unable to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat until that point. Isn't this also true of human beings? So often it seems when a scam is discovered or a crime is committed, the identity of the perpetrator comes as a shock. He seemed so nice. I believed everything he said. They were quiet neighbors and they never caused any trouble. And conversely, we've all had times when we've been surprised by unexpected help from someone who had seemed unfriendly or even untrustworthy. Like the slaves in the parable, we can't always tell the weeds from the wheat. Nevertheless, the landowner immediately grasps what has happened. An enemy has done this. And at this point, we expect him to order the slaves to clean out those weeds. Boy, that's what I would have done. I mean, if you leave weeds in the field, they're going to choke out the wheat, and you're going to get a really good crop of weed seeds. And in fact, the landowner's slaves are so eager to make things right that they don't even wait for him to speak, but immediately offer to go out and gather up those weeds. Let's pull them up, guys. But now we're in for another surprise, for the landowner forbids his slaves from doing what seems best. No, he says, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What kind of farmer would say that? As it turns out, a very wise farmer for this man understood that the roots of the weeds and the roots of the wheat are now entwined together, which is exactly what Darnell does. Its roots wrap around the roots of other plants. So there's no way to separate the weeds from the wheat without causing pretty extensive damage. The slaves will just have to leave them alone until harvest time. So what are we to make of this? It seems to me that this parable reflects life as it is here and now, a mixture of weeds and wheat, evil and good. 
In his commentary on this parable, M. Eugene Boring writes, it chronically comes as a shock that the world, that the family into which we were born, that even the church is not an entirely untrustworthy, excuse me, not an entirely trustworthy place. The world has places of wonder, but alleys of cruelty too. Families cause deep pain as well as great joy. The church can be inspiringly courageous one moment and petty and faithless the next. Good mixes in with the bad. Where did these weeds come from is a perennial human cry. Such a cry may even come from our own lips when we dare to take a good look at ourselves, for we too are a mixture of weeds and wheat, good and bad. I think every single one of us can relate to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 7, 15, when he writes, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Sometimes we are faithful, sometimes we are not. Sometimes we are patient, sometimes we just aren't. Sometimes we are selfish, but often we are selfless, but oftentimes we are selfish. Sometimes we are loving, but other times we are unkind, even vengeful. Given that difficult truth, the landowner's order to let the weeds and wheat grow together might make more sense. Like the slaves, we want to rush in, decide who is in and out, and rid the world of evil. But it is not up to us to judge between the wheat and the weeds. That is not our job, and with good reason. As Robert Ferrer Capon writes, as the parable develops, the enemy turns out to not need anything more than negative power. He only has to act minimally on his own to wreak havoc in the world. Mostly he depends on the forces of goodness insofar as he can sucker them into taking up arms against the confusion he has caused. That is precisely why the enemy in this parable goes away. He has no need whatsoever to hang around. Goodness itself, if it is sufficiently committed to plausible, right-handed, strong-armed methods, will in the very name of goodness do all and more than all that evil than evil ever intended. John Cheshire, John Dawn, excuse me, Cheshire brings this point home when she writes, I thank God that it isn't up to the people of God to have to distinguish the weeds from the wheat, because I guarantee you, no matter how well we think we might be able to do that job, we have to know that not a single one of us could ever do it with the eyes of God. You know why? Because the weeds within us would cloud our judgment so much that we would not be able to tell the weeds from the good wheat. Ouch. Does this mean that we are to do nothing? Does Jesus want us to stand by and let the weeds, the evil in the world, run amok? Because there are times when evil is pretty clear. I don't think so. Listen to the wisdom of Barbara Brown Taylor. What the boss, that is the landowner, seems to know as the best and only real solution to evil is to bear good fruit. Our job in a mixed field is not to give ourselves the enemy by devoting all our energy to the destruction of the weeds, 
but to mind our own business, so to speak, our business being the reconciliation of the world through the practice of unshielded love. If we will give ourselves to that, God will take care of the rest. The practice of unshielded love. What does that mean? I think the parable itself offers us a hint. The word that is translated as let in the sentence, let them both grow together, has another meaning, and that is forgive. As in, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As in, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words that Jesus spoke as he was being crucified. Unshielded love, forgiveness, was the hallmark of his ministry and through him of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Remember the beginning of the parable? The kingdom of heaven can be compared with... The good news is that even in the mixed-up field of our lives, the kingdom of God is growing and thriving, and not even the presence of the most obnoxious and insidious weeds can stop it. This is the hope that Jesus came to proclaim and in which we live. This is the truth for which he died and was raised. This is the grace that is ours through him. In and through that grace, we are called to live as faithfully and as obediently as we can. Sometimes that does mean standing up against evil, but not with violence or vindictiveness. Instead, we are to act with forgiveness, with courage, yes, but also with mercy, with firmness, yes, but also with love. And that love applies not only to others, but to ourselves. Steve Garnas Holmes, who inspiring prayers and poems come to me most days of the week, wrote this on Friday. Your difficulties belong. What angers and seduces you, what pains you or confounds you, are the pages of the book. They are your teachers. They are the rough desert where your Savior abides. The story of grace has many chapters and much suspense. Read the whole book, every page, and keep in your heart the gift of hope, knowing that there is wheat among the weeds. The faithful one knows how to harvest, knowing the story isn't over yet. The story isn't over yet. And the end of the story and the middle of the story is in the hands of the one who loves even our most weedy selves. Thanks be to God. Amen.